is White Sox Weekly, your two-hour all-access pass to everything White Sox. Drive in the air! Deep to right! It is gone! This is a presentation of the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Now here's your host, Shane Orley. Good afternoon, or evening, depending on how you want to phrase it. Welcome in to White Sox Weekly, 3.40 p.m. in Chicago. Getting you set today for White Sox Braves Game 2 from Atlanta. First pitch coming your way, 6.15. Got White Sox Weekly and into the pregame show. It will be Connor McKnight and Len Casper from Atlanta on the call of the game. We will talk to Connor McKnight here on White Sox Weekly as well. And Sox fans, want to let you know, be here on Friday, July 28th for our next post-game concert sponsored by Tito's Handmade Vodka. Don't miss your chance to see country music artist Jake Owen after the White Sox take on the Guardians at 6.10 p.m., Fans must have a game ticket to attend the concert. To purchase your ticket, visit whitesox.com slash concert. I know it was the all-star break, but that doesn't mean baseball slowed down by any means. A lot went on over this past week in Major League Baseball. We had, of course, the home run derby on Monday night. Uh, an interesting week, specifically for the White Sox. Some good on Monday with Luis Robert putting on a show in the Home Run Derby. Get some thoughts on that in a moment. Some good on Wednesday. Liam Hendricks picked up an SB win. Uh, the Perseverance Award, the Jim Valvano Perseverance Award, went to Liam Hendricks Wednesday night at the ESPYs. Great speech from Liam Hendricks, and good to see him get rewarded for everything he's been through in the last year. It was an incredible event. We'll get you more on that around 4.30, and then last night, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, up and down for the White Sox. Last night, the 9 nothing loss to the Atlanta Braves in the first game of a three-game series, but I want to start with Monday night because Monday night in the Home Run Derby, it was a reminder of how great that event really can be, and I know people are really concerned about the TV ratings because they were – I think the lowest in, in in years, second straight year that they had gone down. But I think the event is much better. The the head-to-head tournament style of it, the timed at-bats style of it, I think it's all an improvement over what this event was years ago. I think you can point very easily to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. winning this with 72 home runs compared to his dad winning it back in 2007 with 17. It's clearly a much improved event if we're getting 70 plus home runs from these guys instead of 15. I think we've reached a point where this is better. I do also think we're missing something with it. This event used to be one of the coolest in sports. It used to be you'd sit down and make the popcorn and you would get firework shows. You would get big blasts off of the biggest stars with the biggest bats in baseball. It was Sammy Sosa hitting a ball 550 feet and smiling while he watches it soar, pointing at it, 
going around getting high fives from the guys on the on the dugout sidelines on the dugout steps everybody jumping up and down going crazy the camera cuts really cool i think we're missing that a little bit and maybe that's just me being picky and maybe that's me finding something to complain about because i'll admit the event itself is significantly better than it used to be but i do think we're missing something in terms of how cool it is Luis Roberts a great example. They couldn't stop talking about Luis Robert Monday night in the home run derby, how far he was hitting the ball. He might have been he might have been the most powerful hitter in the home run derby field. Everything off of his bat, 115 miles per hour exit velocity, you know, 25 degree launch angle. Oh, that one's 490 feet. But before it lands, He's already hit two more balls, and there was never, like, it looked effortless. It looked cool. I could have watched him stand in the box and take cuts for hours and hours and hours, and I would not have complained because he was incredible. He put on a show. Adley Rutschman went out, did the switch hitting deal. Everybody thought it was cool. I saw social media get really hyped up. Young Orioles catcher, budding star in this league, goes out, does the switch hitting thing, gets the 27 home runs, and then here comes Luis Robert, and he barely needed bonus time, four swings in bonus time to clear the 27 Adley Rutschman hit, and all of them were going close to 500 feet. I thought it was amazing, but I would have liked if we got to see Robert point at him, celebrate, put on a little show after he just hit a 500-foot nuke. I would have loved to see him celebrate more. I think we're missing a little bit of the coolness aspect of the home run derby. But all overall, a much improved event. And I hope that the TV ratings find a way to bounce back because I personally feel like this is the last great all-star event. The dunk contest in the NBA isn't a shadow of what it used to be. The home run derby is the only one that I think is actually improving year over year. And it was interesting Something else that came out of this, Luis Sierra was the uh, batting practice pitcher for Luis Robert. And this year, that kind of took center stage. And I feel like it does every year. And every year we have this conversation about, oh, well, you know, this was the year we found out just how important the batting practice pitcher in the home run derby is. And this year, that was absolutely on the table because poor Pete Alonso. Poor Pete Alonso has... His typical guy from his high school, his high school coach that's done this event with him year over year, practices during the season with Pete to work on things, to get ready for the Home Run Derby, which has become Pete Alonzo's premier event. He's been, you know, one of the best at this event. And poor Pete Alonzo, his high school coach, in the week leading up to the Derby, Blows his elbow, can't pitch the batting practice in the home run derby, and Pete Alonso's got to get some guy off the Mets bench to throw to him. And I'm watching this guy. Everybody's talking about it. This guy from the Mets throwing to Pete Alonso's giving him sliders down and away. And poor Pete Alonso can't get anything he can get a barrel on. He's got to take everything the other way. I thought Luis Sierra, the first round, did a great job. The second round, it's a little harder to judge. The spot got off a little bit when he was pitching to Luis Robert, but also we know Luis Robert suffered a right calf strain in the first round of the Derby, and I imagine that started to tighten up a little bit, 
and took its toll on him in the second round. So he fell to Randy Rosarena. And then Tuesday night, we had the All-Star game. And one of the oddities of Major League Baseball was the American League had won nine straight. And it's not like the American League has some wealth of talent that the National League has no access to. I think it was just one of those random things. And it looked like we would see another American League victory in the All-Star game for much of that game until a clutch moment. And you end up with the NL getting their first win in nine years, three to two. And then we get the TV ratings on this. The All-Star game wasn't well watched. And I start to wonder why that might be. And I think a lot of it is the score. You think about an all-star game, you'd probably like to see more than five total runs. I remember the the all-star game uh, maybe last year, two years ago in Colorado, and the total on the betting side being like 15 and a half. I think people, when you think of an all-star game, you think of the NBA all-star game and the 300-point totals that they'll hit. You know, the game ends 180 to 175. People probably want something more like that in baseball. 3-2, a pitcher's duel with the pitchers changing every single inning. I could see the casual fans zoning out of it. I enjoyed it. I wish the uniforms went back to the way they used to be after actually seeing that play out. Funny, last week on White Sox Weekly, we had a caller who said the number one gripe for him about Major League Baseball's All-Star Game was their transition to American League and National League jerseys instead of everybody wearing their own team's uniform. And I think we saw that play out a little bit in real time. I didn't think it was a huge issue until Tuesday night when I turned the game on and guys are subbing in and out of this game so much, it's hard to know who you're watching. If Freddie Freeman's at first base... And then he just comes out, but the next guy looks similar to Freddie Freeman and is wearing the same uniform. You don't necessarily, if you miss the broadcast saying who's in, who's out, you don't necessarily know. I think it took something away because there is also the aspect of regional baseball fans watching the All Star game and trying to see their guy. You want to see your guy in the White Sox jersey. Luis Robert didn't play because of that calf strain, but the point stands. You want to see your guy in their jersey, in their uniform, out there in the field making plays, that doesn't happen when you have the individual American League, National League jerseys. So I thought that actually wound up being a a, a good point. Uh, Wednesday, I told you, Liam Hendricks got that ESPY, and then last night happened. And I'm going to have a broader conversation about Michael Kopech in a little bit. We'll talk to Connor McKnight here, and I want to get Connor's take on the situation with uh, Kopech. It's been a struggle. Last night was as alarming a start as we've seen. Two-thirds of an inning pitched, and you wonder if he came back off the injured list too quickly. But his last five starts, he hasn't gone more than five innings. Here's the line last night, if you missed it. Two-thirds of an innings pitched, one hit, four runs all earned, four walks, a home run. That was the grand slam in the first inning from Matt Olson, and he didn't survive the inning. The four starts before that, you've got four innings, four hits, seven walks. Four innings, three hits, three runs, five walks. Four and a third, six hits, one run, six walks. And it's alarming because Kopech, for the most part, it felt like he was getting out of this zone that he'd been in where command was a real issue. There was a stretch through May and June 
not much of June, but May and the start of June where he was working deeper into games. He was getting further along, putting together some quality starts, not walking as many guys. And then it became a real battle sometime in the month of June where he's surviving a lot of these outings without giving up a ton of runs. But you're getting nervous because the walk number is going up so much. In his last four starts, you're talking about 20 walks. 20 walks in four starts. The command, it's just not there. And it's getting to a point where it's, I think, becoming a concern again for Kopech. And that's a bummer to me because it felt like we were getting out of that. It felt like he was rounding into the guy that we thought he would be when they traded for him. You bring him in as a prospect, one of the most hyped arms in baseball. Now in his age 27 season, it started to feel like he's figuring it out. He's learning to pitch. He's getting command of the fastball. He's getting command of all the pitches. Well, last night, 14 fastballs to open the game. Only three of them were strikes. Walked four batters, one of them a hit by pitch. And then you give up the grand slam to Matt Olson. It's just, I I wonder if he came back from the injured list too quickly. I have no, no that's total speculation. But it's it's not what you want to see from Michael Kopech. And we're hoping that he can get back into that range he was in where it felt like he was figuring it out. I'll have more uh, with, with that with Connor McKnight. Talk a little more about Michael Kopech. And the last thing that I want to get to in this show is the upcoming deadline and some of the intrigue that's around that. White Sox, buy or sell. I think we all kind of have an idea where they're leaning. We'll find out for sure in the coming weeks. But there is a fascinating conversation to be had, and there are some reports out there of the teams that are reaching out, teams that are interested, teams that are familiar with what's in the White Sox system, with how they approach their minor league players, uh, teams that have a little bit of a rapport with the White Sox, one in particular on the West Coast, another team in desperate need of starting pitching, kind of a surprise run that may be reaching out about Lucas Giolito. And I think there are probably five pitchers that you could likely see moved by the time we hit the deadline. I don't know if they're all going to get moved, but I think there's a group, and Giolito's included in that group, of four or five guys that we could likely see moved. And that's just the pitching. So a lot to do here on White Sox Weekly today. 312-332-3776 is the phone number for you. We will talk to Connor McKnight more on Michael Kopech and the latest with the White Sox. He's on location in Atlanta. Braves White Sox coming up in a little bit. First pitch, 615. It's White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Recap the game, Cap and Jay Hood, weekday mornings at 7. You're listening to White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Shane Orling in for Connor. He'll have the call of the game, Braves and White Sox, coming up in a little bit. Let's pause here for 10 seconds so stations can identify themselves. Live from the old National Bank State Street Studio, this is WMVP WSAG HD2, Chicago, a good karma brand's radio station. Uh, Attention White Sox fans, the 2024 schedule is out. Start planning your season and secure your ticket plans today. 
Be here for the biggest matchups, exciting new promotions, as well as opening day on March 28th. For more information and to secure your 2024 tickets, visit whitesocks.com slash 2024. Connor McKnight will join us in just a few minutes. Mentioned he is on the call of the game today with Len Casper. That first pitch, 6-15, 4 o'clock right now. Talking to Connor, I'm excited to ask him about Michael Kopech, uh, especially the outing last night, because it still stands out to me listening to it on the broadcast, watching it here in the White Sox studios. The fastball use early was overwhelming. And it was something I I don't think we've seen that extent of exclusivity in pitch selection out of Michael Kopech. But last night, the first 14 pitches were fastballs, and it really stood out to me. He worked in a curve after that, then another fastball, and throughout the rest of his outing, a ton of sliders. But it was interesting to me how exclusive he was with the fastball as we bring in Connor McKnight here on White Sox Weekly. Connor. What's up, man? Good to hear from you. Shay, thanks for having me, man. Appreciate it. I hope the uh, hope you hear me all right. Just walking around the ballpark here in Atlanta. You sound great. How's the weather? Uh, it's hot. It's, it's, <laughs> it's hot. It's it's windy up here in the 400 level. It is even hotter down there at field level. Uh, it's a it's a topic of conversation. Tune in to the pregame show. Len Casper's conversation with Pedro Grafal is going to center around some of that heat. Pedro doesn't mind, but he's a South Florida guy, and everybody else is absolutely dying here. 92 degrees or something like that, I think I saw a pre-show yeah. here. I, that, yeah. You're baking at 92 degrees, especially. It's, it's one of those newer stadiums, right, where the field level's lower than the actual ground level, so it gets real hot down on the field. It, it does. It is unrelenting. Uh, it's a wet heat, which is not good. It's like I'm, It's like you're walking through soup all while being boiled alive. It's, it's, it's really something else. Connor, it doesn't sound like the most enjoyable experience, but well, we're that, glad you're that, out there I'm working. Hungry. I'm hungry, and I, get, yeah, I, get used, I don't know where I'm going yet. It's my first time at the ballpark. It's all this other kind of stuff. You know, it's a whole thing. First time at the park. How is it? You know so I got here last night. Uh, my flight landed about 6 o'clock, got to the ballpark about 745 uh, so I missed, you know, what you were talking about there coming back from the bridge. Well, I missed it live. I went back watching, but all the fastballs from Kopech and the, the struggles that mounted. Uh, but I, I like the ballpark. It's very, it, it's in a very like suburban area. Like imagine if, if somebody plopped a very large ballpark, like in Libertyville or something like that, <laughs> it, it, that part of it's a little odd, but the actual park itself is very cool. The sight lines are fun. They had the 31st sellout of the year last night. There have been 46 home games for the Atlanta Braves. 36 sold out, or 31 sold out. So it's a, it's a packed house. It gets loud. Um, and they, there's, there's just a sense here, too. I mean, this is, this is very much the, the best team in baseball right now, the Atlanta Braves. And, you know, you go through all the numbers that they've accomplished, right, the home runs they've hit and all this stuff. And in every post-game press conference, these players are like, the hell with it, it doesn't matter, none of this matters until we win the World Series and then we get to talk about these kinds of things. So they, they yeah. know what, um, what the goal is here after a disappointing run last year in the postseason after winning the whole thing in 21. I do want to ask you about the Atlanta Braves. I want to talk to you about that because I think we are watching a historic season that nobody's talking about. But before we get to that, 
I'm curious about Michael Kopech and what happened last night. 14 straight fastballs to open the game is unlike anything I've really seen from him. He's always relied on the fastball, but to be that exclusive with it, especially it seemed like his velocity was down a little bit. 93-94 wasn't overpowering. What what happened there? You know, it's it's interesting, Shay. I it's a it's a battery that works together, right? And and there's a pitching infrastructure that's behind that and meetings and everything going into the game where you've got a strategy set. And I, you know, having having watched it on repeat and not being here, like I said, my flight got in about 6 o'clock, so not seeing it live and not feeling it live gives it a little bit of a feel when you watch back. Because there's no way to watch that for the first time and not know, like on, on replay, and not know that there's 14 straight fastballs coming. Right. I, I would guess that there's a little bit of a confidence issue there, but not in the way that, like, you'd say, oh, he's just not confident in the slider or maybe not confident in the changeup or whatever, a curveball, what have you. Kopech's got some agency in this, right? Signs go down from, from the backstop no matter who he's catching or who's catching him, rather. And if you're not at the top of your game or, or anywhere close to it, and it's been a struggle for Michael over the last couple of starts, I wonder how empowered – or how much agency you feel in shaking off a particular pitch. And maybe you just got to do that every now and again. You know, I, 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 think it's, I think it's a lot based in confidence, but for a lot of different reasons. I, I think the, the kind of branch kind of goes in a lot of different ways from that issue of confidence. Today's starter, Lance Lynn, has kind of felt like the opposite. You, you brought up the struggle it's been for Kopech to get longer outings and the command Lynn it feels like has rounded back into form and maybe gotten his confidence back I've been wanting to talk with you about this too because you brought up a point about the way he's using his off-speed pitches more than he has really ever he's most of his career just been you're going to get 60 percent fastballs and that's going to be the way Lance Lynn's going to pitch to you now he's using the changeup a lot more yeah, and it's it's really interesting too because uh, Fangraphs actually wrote an article. It's it's out today, and we'll talk about it some on the broadcast about how the underlying metrics beneath Lance Lynn's kind of stuff tells you that he's just fine and having a really unlucky several parts of his season. Now the walk rate is up, right? And I don't think that's necessarily unlucky, um, and that's probably led to bigger numbers when he does allow home runs. When you look at the strikeout rate he's got against right-handers. His, that fastball is still really good against right-handed batters. Everything he gives up in the air on the fastball to lefties goes out of the ballpark, which is just kind of wild to, to think about. It, it's like he's getting terrible hands at the blackjack table over and over again, despite the fact that he's got an ace showing. You know, it's, it's really strange. So he has mixed in a lot of that off-speed to lefties, trying to keep them off the stuff. You know, the fastball's down about a half click right so that matters a little bit the overall velocity down a bit the guy is getting a little older but you know he's a top 10 strikeout guy he's top four i think in strikeouts per nine right now the only guy that spencer strider is going to be pitching for the braves tonight is one one in both strikeouts overall and strikeouts per nine so if you're i don't know inclined to put some dollars down on the game i would take the overall strikeout number and take the over i'm just saying but I think it'd probably be a decent bet tonight. Yeah, the other worry, you mentioned everything that goes in the air from a lefty leaves the ballpark. Not a good sign when you're playing this Atlanta Braves team that hits home runs at just the fastest pace in the history of baseball. 
Yeah, they, they pound, man. They absolutely pound. Slugging percentage is the name of the game here in Atlanta. Ball in the air is the name of the game as well. You know, and last night the White Sox grounded into what felt like 17 double plays. I know that's not possible, but uh, it, it felt like they, they hit into every single one of them that they could find. And that's just kind of been in the name of the offense for the White Sox. There have been far too many ground balls hit for this team. And you look at the Braves, and they're, they're very much the opposite. You look at the lefties in this lineup, Ozzy Albies is a switch hitter, um, but obviously can swing it from the left side. He's got 22 home runs. Eddie Rosario can pop one, even though he's having kind of an average year. Uh, and then Michael Harris at the bottom of that lineup, he hits nine. Matt Olson goes without saying, right? You kind of just yeah. brush past him. Obviously a very dangerous dangerous man who swings from the left side of the plate, but there's some other lefties here that, that could be some trouble. Connor, I'm going to talk more about the Braves later in this show, but I want to ask you, because Brendan Riley and I were having a conversation yesterday, where would this team, you're getting your chance to see them live this year, where would they rank among the best you've seen? The, the numbers that they're putting up, I was reading last night, they would be the seventh team, I think, in the history of baseball to be first in both team ERA and on-base plus slugging. All, all while missing three of their top six, but depending on how you want to cut it in terms of two talent, all while missing probably three of their top six starters, all right, which is unbelievable. Uh, you talk about the depth and the, the adaptability, the, the work out of the bullpen they've been able to get, the overall offense. Here's the other thing that really impresses me, and we were just talking about this a little bit um, uh, down there in the clubhouse. They've got four guys who have played 90 games. That's every single game on the schedule for the Braves this year. They have nine guys who have played over 75% of the games, and that includes catcher Sean Murphy, who has played 68 and is in the lineup for number 69 tonight. That is is incredible. It's also somewhat lucky, right, that those that injuries haven't popped up. But I, you know, second-half swoon can happen, right? I, I'm still yet to claim this is one of the best teams I've ever seen because there's still a lot of baseball to go. And I was around for the, the 98 Yankees and all these yeah. other, you know, ball clubs that, that really made runs through the steroid era, which bears mentioning, but still played some really good seasons. So I think they're in the running this Braves team is probably in the running right now to be one of the top five I've ever watched. But I'm, I'm, you know, it's it's on pace for Shay. It's not there yet. Yeah, you know? of course. And do you expect them? I mean, you look at their month of June and the first half of July. Do you know what their record is since the calendar flipped to June? People talk uh, about the Reds being on this hot yeah. streak. Try thirty and six, Connor. Yeah, yeah. It's it's and it's you mentioned it too. People aren't talking about the Braves, and I'm not entirely sure why. Like, Ronald Acuna Jr. got second billing at the All-Star game because Shohei Otani is a thing, and that's at least understandable. Yeah. But this, it's not like the Atlanta Braves haven't been here before, right? They won 14 straight division titles when we were kids. Or maybe it was 16. Like, it's, it's, this is a storied franchise already, despite only one World Series in that in those 14 or 16 straight. I forget exactly how many. Um, but this is this is something else. And they're, they're packing them in at the ballpark to watch it, I'll tell you that. Well, you talk about Acuna, a true superstar in this league, the steals and the home runs at a historic pace in the first half of the season. And it felt like more people were talking about Ellie De La Cruz not being at the All-Star game than they were yeah. talking about Acuna being there. 
He's got a chance to be the second player ever to have a 40-homer, 40-double, 40-steal season. The other is Alfonso Soriano with the 2006 Texas Rangers, and he damn near did it a a second time in 2002 while he was with the Yankees. I think he had 39 home runs that year. But 40-40-40 is, I I mean, it's breathtaking. And, And DJ talks about this a lot. Stealing bases is hard on the body, right? It's not just taking off from first and timing it to second and trusting on your speed. You've got to dive back to the bases. It wears out your legs. You're going to go a couple of times, and there's going to be foul balls, and you've got to reset and do it again and still take the bag. We are in a day and age where playing 150 games qualifies you as an Ironman. And I don't mean to do this, you know, it was better back in the day or any of this other stuff. You know, because 25 years ago, they were playing four-and-a-half-hour games. And the guys over the last 10 years were playing four-and-a-half-hour games. And that time, standing around on the field in spikes matters in terms of soft tissue and leg injury. You'll never convince me otherwise. But we are now in this you know, kind of new revamped era where steals are cool again and games are in and out in two-and-a-half hours. I wouldn't put it past Acuna to go 40-40-40, and I'll be really happy to watch it happen. It would be incredible. Connor, good luck finding your way around Truist Park. Uh, we'll talk to you in a little bit. Thanks for coming on. I think I found the press box, guys, so uh, Len's gonna have, <laughs> Len will have a partner this evening. I don't know if that's good news or bad news, but I think we'll be okay. We're taking it as good news, Connor. There you go. Appreciate you. All right. Thanks, buddy. On the other side, White Sox Weekly continues. I want to get into some of the reporting ahead of the trade deadline. White Sox in communication with a couple interesting teams in the National League and are reportedly going to be one of the top targets for starting pitching. We'll get to some of that next. It's White Sox Weekly, ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. It's simple. The ESPN Chicago app. White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Shane Orling sitting in with you till pregame. We'll transition over to pregame around 540. First pitch from Atlanta today. It's Lance Lynn and Spencer Strider. That'll be 615 from Truist Ballpark in Atlanta. Connor McKnight just joined us, said it is hot. Clear skies, but 90-plus degrees in Atlanta. We'll see how that plays out today. Sox fans, bring your family to a White Sox game with a family pack presented by Exxon Mobil. Your family will get one ticket, a hot dog, a drink, and chips to select games starting at $19 per ticket. Plus, with every purchase, you have a chance to win mobile gasoline for a year. For tickets, visit whitesocks.com slash family. Uh, Trade deadline's coming up. That has been the focus of a lot of the news and reporting throughout Major League Baseball, and especially with the White Sox. The latest reporting Basically, anywhere you can find it. If you pay attention to baseball news at all, I can imagine that you have seen uh, reporting that the White Sox and the Tigers, both AL Central teams, are going to be the primary targets for starting pitching. Could that change? Sure. Could San Diego throw uh, Blake Snell on the market and all of a sudden they become the target? Maybe. Could the Angels really get hot in investing in the idea of trading Shohei Otani and then he's automatically the number one starting pitcher on the market? Absolutely. 
But we have to work with what we have available today on July 15th at 4.30 in the afternoon. And that is, right now, Lucas Giolito is probably the best pitcher that is very firmly on the trade market. And the White Sox have been rumored as this team that's going to be a top target for contenders like the Dodgers that are in desperate need of starting pitching. And the White Sox have not a ton of it, but more than most. Giolito, you've got a solid middle-of-the-rotation arm in a resurgent bounce-back campaign. You look at Lance Lynn, who's brought himself back into form, a guy who has found his pitching status again a little bit after what was a rough start to the season. The last few outings for Lance Lynn have been better, and he's pitching his way into being a part of that conversation at the trade deadline. The White Sox in my estimation, have a group of probably five guys that are very likely to be dealt as pitchers. And I think you'll get this if you go through some of the reporting. These aren't going to be names that that surprise anybody. And it's Giolito, it's Lynn, it's Mike Clevenger, who's currently injured, but sounds like from Pedro Grifol taking steps uh, I think the wording today was needs to clear some hurdles and then we'll clear the next one. But it feels like he's going to be ready to go sooner than later. He's had a solid year, an ERA under four, three, eight-ish. Clevenger's been okay, and he's a guy on a one-year deal. You've got Lance Lynn, the million-dollar buyout after this season. I mentioned he's been better lately. Uh, seven innings his last time out with 11 strikeouts. He had the 16 strikeout outing against Seattle. He's been solid. Connor told you last segment he's been one of the top strikeout arms in baseball, still in that top 10. You've got Giolito, and then I think you have Keenan Middleton out of the bullpen and Joe Kelly, who's also hurt right now, but another one of those guys with the buyout, Keenan Middleton, an unrestricted free agent. These are the names that it just you don't necessarily want your team to be in position where they're selling but these are the names that I think are the likeliest to not be here just because at the end of the season there are either very easy outs regarding their future or they're unrestricted free agents and typically with those guys doesn't make a lot of sense for a front office to hang on to them so then you start to think about destinations well if I'm a White Sox fan There's one destination that makes me a little nervous, and that's the Los Angeles Dodgers. And you think about a couple of years ago when they made the big blockbuster trade for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner, and they're resetting the Nationals franchise. They're going into a rebuild, and the Dodgers send this guy, Kiebert Ruiz, who was thought of as this elite prospect, a catcher, Really talented hitter, two-tool hitter, can do it all, good defensive backstop, just an elite prospect. Somebody that would come out of the Dodgers system that everybody would want would be a stud in Los Angeles, and they were willing to give him up to acquire Scherzer and Trey Turner. They they didn't win a title, but if you look at what Kiebert Ruiz has done for the Nationals since that deal, not a lot. And when you look at the history of the Dodgers getting into some of these deadline trades, 
I'm not telling you that you're going to lose because you're dealing with the Dodgers. But if I'm a fan, if I'm a White Sox fan, I would get a little leery. This is a team that doesn't lose deals a lot. I think a part of that could be their development staff is miles ahead of everybody else. That's just, it's fact. Everybody that they call up is good. Them and Atlanta. It doesn't matter how loaded the farm system is, what the level of prospect is. Tampa is this way. Houston is this way. The development staff, the analytics staffs, the research staffs are so far ahead of everyone else that maybe it's just if that prospect had stayed in Los Angeles and come up and played with the Dodgers, he would have been great. But because he went someplace else, it doesn't pan out quite that way. They do have some solid players. They have multiples at the catcher position. They have multiples at a couple positions. They have starting pitching coming up in their system. I think you could get some things back for Giolito. Maybe you crack the top five of their system. I don't know that you get number one, but you get a top five prospect back from the Dodgers. Then it just becomes a case of you have to develop that player and and, and make them good. The other team that has been really rumored here is the Cincinnati Reds. They've gotten hot, took first place in the NL Central, and with Ellie De La Cruz, it's a team that they don't have any idea how good they are. They're just walking out and playing ball and winning baseball games at an unbelievable clip. And it's good for the Cincinnati fan base to have talented baseball, to have fun, exciting baseball in Cincinnati again. But they're in a position where Maybe they want to give up a little bit of their farm system to get somebody like Lucas Giolito. And if they're going to win the Central and try to make a push and be involved in a playoff chase, that's another destination that's been rumored. So right now, the the point is, Giolito is headlining the pitching market. Now there's a question of timing. Because you start to think about getting this done at the appropriate moment. You don't want to handcuff yourself as we get late in this. You don't want to handcuff yourself and and be coming up on August 1st and you haven't done any enough yet and you've got to fire drill this and figure out a way to get it done. We'll talk a little bit more about that, and I want to talk about what happened Wednesday night. Uh, it was a great night for Liam Hendricks at the ESPYs. He got the Jim Valvano Award for Perseverance. A little more on the timing of the trade deadline and some Liam Hendricks. We'll do it next. It's White Sox Weekly, the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Get weird with Waddle's World on ESPN Chicago. It's White Sox Weekly. Shane Orling sitting in with you, taking you up to... Well, we'll transition with me to pregame at 540. It'll be Connor McKnight and Len Casper on the call of the game. First pitch from Atlanta at 615. Lance Lynn on the hill for the Sox. It's Spencer Strider, the young star pitcher for the Atlanta Braves. 615 first pitch from Atlanta. Sox fans, don't miss your chance to watch the Sox and Cubs battle it out in the Trust Crosstown Series from a private Diamond Suite on July 25th and 26th. Diamond Suites include a customizable food and beverage package to make your outing a success. For more information, 
Visit whitesocks.com slash sweets or call or text 312-674-1000. That's 312-674-1000. Talking about the trade deadline, and I mentioned in the pitching staff, there are probably five arms that are fairly good bets to be dealt by the August 1st trade deadline. And I told you those five arms, Lucas Giolito is the headline across all of Major League Baseball. As it stands today, probably the top name that's been put out as the number one target for starting pitching in all of baseball. The Reds reportedly have been in contact with the White Sox. The Reds have gotten hot and take a lead in the uh, National League Central, feel like they can contend but need starting pitching help. Lucas Giolito reportedly a top target for them. The Dodgers and White Sox, who share a facility in spring training, are very familiar with one another's systems, could be in contact. Lucas Giolito, a Los Angeles guy, could be an option for the Dodgers. Their rotation has been mediocre at best, and they've lost their anchor, Clayton Kershaw, to injury for a little bit. They're going to need rotation help. Giolito could be the top option for them. Now, could Blake Snell parachute into this market? Sure. Could Shohei Otani parachute into this market? Of course. But as it stands today, Giolito feels like the number one name. The other names I offered to you, Lance Lynn could be on the chopping block. As far as the trade deadline block, you've got Keenan Middleton, you've got Joe Kelly, who has the million-dollar buyout at the end of the season, and you've got Mike Clevenger, who was brought in on a one-year deal, hurt right now, but put together a pretty decent year, ERA under four, bit of a bounce back. White Sox could shop him as well. There is a school of thought that I heard uh, recently, listening around the league, some of the uh, radio shows, some of the talk shows, and some of the reporting, that you don't necessarily want to wait until July 30th, July 31st, August 1st, and be right up against the deadline trying to fire drill some of these deals. That it could behoove Rick Hahn and the White Sox to strike early with this because there's a thought process that a team acquiring Giolito might value him more if they get 13, 14 starts instead of 11 or 12 if you get him right at the deadline. I don't know if that has a huge impact, but I think it is something teams think about. What is the value paying per start if you get one, two, three bonus starts out of him? Is it better to make that deal earlier? The other thought is if you make these deals earlier and you get them done now, you, what you don't want to have happen is the deadline comes and all five of these guys are still on the team, if all five of them are on the trade block. Because then you run the risk of only getting one of them, only getting two of them traded. And then Sox fans wonder, why are we holding on to these guys who are going to be gone at the end of the year regardless? I, we've heard that reported. It has been reported Giolito at the end of the season likely gone, not going to be a member of the White Sox. That does feel like if you're a fan, if you're watching this outside looking in, well, then there's one option. You trade him at the deadline. So the timing I do think is interesting as we sit here July 15th, and, yeah, you've got 
two and a half weeks until the deadline. But that doesn't necessarily mean wait, 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 and we'll do this all right at the at the buzzer. There is a school of thought, and I think it's a decent one, of try to get things done earlier. Strike while the iron is hot, as the saying goes. Maybe you don't give San Diego or Los Angeles, the Angels, the opportunity to inject Blake Snell or Shohei Otani into this market and dilute what you could get back for what you have if you do this earlier. It's just one way that a lot of people around the league are talking about it that I found fascinating. I found it to be a fascinating conversation, this idea that a team would value getting what you could call extra starts out of a pitcher that they would be acquiring instead of acquiring them for 11 starts and paying a premium just to get 10, 11 starts out of them. You pay the same premium, but you get 13 or 14. I thought it was a fascinating conversation, and I do think there is credence to the idea you hold on to all of them until the end and somebody else injects the market with a premium player. All of the sudden, what you could get back might be lessened. You might have a strategic advantage in trading these guys a couple weeks earlier. Just a thought process that I saw out there I wanted to offer to you. 312-332-3776 is the phone number. If you want to weigh in, talk White Sox. It's White Sox Weekly. Uh, I want to bring up again the Atlanta Braves, because they've pulled off something with this team that I think is unbelievable. Much of the talent that they have is homegrown. And I mentioned we'd, we'd bring up Liam Hendricks and the Espies. We'll do that next. I want to make sure we have the time to address that appropriately and give Liam the time that he deserves. I want to talk about the Braves here because their farm system currently ranks 25th in baseball. It's not extraordinary. It's not loaded with all of these incredible prospects the way Houston was for a while, the way Tampa has almost always been. It's just kind of average. But they do something amazing. They call up guys who are just good players, all of them. Almost their entire team is homegrown. You think about the guys that came up through their system that are still on team-friendly deals, who they've developed internally, and they've created this team that suddenly ranks among the best we've seen in all of baseball and is pacing like a team that could end up historic, one of seven teams in history to lead the league in Team ERA and Team On-Base Plus Slugging, and they've done it all through their development staff. I think when you look around the league, and if you're a White Sox fan and you're looking for how does this get done in other markets, how do other teams manage to build year-in, year-out contenders, the Braves don't necessarily have a ton of high-profile names. Ronald Acuna, sure. Spencer Strider, sure. Matt Olson, absolutely. But it's guys like Eddie Rosario and Ozzie Albies that round this thing out that are just quality ball players and you put them in a lineup that's full of quality ball players you end up with a team that's pacing for history that is 61 and 29 that's just gone on a stretch where they're 30 and 6 since the calendar flipped to june and they've done it in a way where they're just bringing up good guys from their system developing them into really high level players not necessarily superstars ronald acuna again 
superstar. You get one of those. But the Braves have found a way to bring up six or seven dudes who you're not going to recognize them walking down the street, but they add to what is the best team in baseball. So it's easy to say, yeah, the best team in baseball, that's the model that you should chase. But I think the way they do it is especially unique. They're not loaded with talent in the farm system. They're not loaded with major big contracts the way the Dodgers are with multiple $200 million deals, the way the Yankees had done it for years. They do it a little differently. And I think it's something that if you're a Sox fan, you can look at and go, that's something we should bring here is the ability to develop just names and turn them into high-level players that round out a really good team. Uh, Liam Hendricks, Wednesday night at the ESPYs, accepted the Jim Valvano uh, Perseverance Award. I want to talk a little bit about that, and you'll hear his speech next on White Sox Weekly. It's ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Follow Chicago's Home for Sports on Twitch, ESPN 1000 Chicago. It's White Sox Weekly. Shane Orling sitting in with you. I'll have the pregame show at 540. First pitch from Atlanta coming up at 615. Lance Lynn against Spencer Strider as the White Sox have game two against the Atlanta Braves, the best team in baseball tonight. This is the ESPN 1000 Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Join us on July 29th for a pregame Sox Crawl Day Party presented by Vizzy Hard Seltzer. Enjoy the summer vibes, Sox baseball, and a party in the outfield with live entertainment from our Sox DJ. This crawl features food and beverage happy hour specials, exclusive co-branded sunglasses, and more. And I believe Sox DJ is not Darren Jackson. It is actually the Sox disc jockey there, not Darren Jackson. Just want to make sure that's clear. To purchase tickets, visit whitesox.com slash crawl. That's whitesox.com. Slash socks crawl. I, I talked a little bit in the open on White Sox Weekly. It was an interesting week for the Sox. Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Monday, you've got the wonderful uh, show Luis Robert put on in the opening round of the Home Run Derby. Friday, you've got the return to baseball with a bizarre stat line for Michael Kopech. But Wednesday was maybe the best night of the White Sox all year. And it was a night where a guy who is among the best personalities in Chicago sports, not just the Chicago White Sox, among the most recognizable relief names in all of baseball and one of the most deserving, nice, easy-to-root-for people in Major League Baseball and certainly with this Chicago White Sox organization, Liam Hendricks took main stage at one of ESPN's signature events, the ESPYs, where he received the Jim Valvano Perseverance Award. We know what Liam has been through with the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma diagnosis and everything that he went through to get ready to even be able to pitch in 2023. It's an incredible story. I don't want to take anything away from Liam's ability to tell you about it himself. This was his speech accepting the Jim Valvano Perseverance Award at the ESPYs on Wednesday night. Never in all my life that I think I would be on stage, and I'm so humbled to be here, recognized by the ESPYs, but also in this room full of probably, if not the greatest athletes, some of all time. Uh, it's, it's such an honor to be here. Uh, I want to thank everybody for it. But uh, 
Look, cancer changes you. There's no doubt about it. Going through this, it changed me for the better. There's a lot of times where I'm sitting out here thinking about what I could have done differently, what I could have done differently in my life leading up to this moment. But you know what? Everything, is, everything in life is short. Life, it's just trivial. Things are just trivial when you go through something like this. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter how it goes. All that matters is that you just live life your way. Do it your, fly by your own seat. Fly by everything you want to do yourself. And that's all that really matters. I mean, I was 33 years old when I got diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Not exactly the off-season I had planned this year. But it is what it is. And all you can do is tackle it <laughs> and advance. It turned out that obviously you heard in the video that I pitched pretty much all of 2022 with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, that was a, an eye-opener. Like, I didn't feel too many symptoms, but I had some lumps around, and it just shows you the power of the mind. When you don't think anything's wrong, and you believe that you can do anything, you can do anything. I was throwing 100 miles an hour while going through stage four lymphoma, and then coming back after doing chemotherapy, four rounds of chemo, eight rounds of, oh, sorry, eight rounds of uh, chemotherapy and four rounds of immunotherapy came back and was able to get out there and throw 96 miles an hour. That isn't physically a bit who I am. That's all this. That's all mental. As I alluded to earlier, I wouldn't be here tonight without my wife, my credible team at the Mayo Clinic, with especially Dr. Alison Rosenthal. She was, she was the person when she told me I have stage four lymphoma, said, I'm not worried. To those little words, I don't think I've ever meant more to anybody in the history of the world. I'm not worried while telling you you have stage four cancer. She is one of the main reasons that I'm up here tonight. <laughs> I want to thank the Chicago White Sox organization for your constant faith in me and allowing me to still be a part of the team during chemotherapy while coming into spring training and being able to kind of get in do all my work. I mean, that um, yeah, <laughs> got me off the couch, and that's big. To our friends and family always checking in, you guys are the best. My agency, Align Sports, I wouldn't be here without you. And my wife, Christy, who I spoke about earlier, she is my absolute rock. She is my world. She's the one who, any athlete out here who has a wife behind them or a, or a husband or a partner, they know that when you're doing well, you sometimes need a big kick up the ass to get, uh, to get humbled a little bit quickly. And she's that person to me. But she's also the person that will pick you up no matter what is going on and make you know that you're, you're, the, <laughs> you're the greatest that she's ever known. And to Christy, I mean, this is as much yours as it is mine. As you can tell, cancer isn't something you fight alone. Nobody fights this alone. My care team, family, and friends, they encompassed my entire heartbeat. They were my lifeline when I didn't know if I could overcome this. They are my lifeline as I continue on, on my journey. If I leave you with anything, and I cannot stress this enough, please reach out to anybody going through anything similar to this, whether it be cancer, whether it be anxiety, whether it be depression, whether it be any number of things. Trust me, you are not annoying. You will not be an annoyance to us. All that matters is that you give us that little bit of a text. That could be the singular moment of us picking up our spirits and being able to advance to the next stage, being able to advance that next day of treatment, being able to advance past anything that we're going through. That one text can be the difference. So like Jimmy V said, don't give up. 
don't ever give up, and I won't. What stands out to me about what Liam said there, and it was powerful stuff to even see him on that stage, to see him pitch this season. You think about a guy who received his diagnosis in 2022, and when he went public with it and all of the lead-up to this season and the thoughts and, and ideas that maybe he wouldn't pitch again, to be able to not only pitch again, but to be on that stage and receive that award and offer a speech where the crux of it was not even about himself. It was about what he feels like he can do for others. It speaks to the kind of human being that he is outside of being a high level closer in major league baseball, outside of the talent, outside of the guy who after he gets a strikeout, has an expletive-laden rant on the mound, screaming as he's coming off the hill, pumping his fists, jumping up and down. That's easy enough to root for as a baseball fan. When you see someone with that level of energy, with the level of leadership that he brings to the White Sox clubhouse, that's easy enough to root for. But then when you think about him as a human being who's gone through this and on the other side of it comes out and still at the forefront of his mind is this idea that he can serve others, that he can be a resource and an inspiration for other people, for people in regular walks of life, for people who are not afforded the privilege and the access that being a major league baseball player gets you. And this is a guy who, in Oakland, went through a little bit of everything, struggled a lot, got sent down, had to really have a flip. And he's talked about it. There's a great column uh, from a month ago, Tori Rubenstein, NBC Sports Chicago, where Liam said you can kind of take a look at his career and you can see just even in the numbers the moment where his process changed and he decided to attack guys instead of let the game come to him and his career revitalized. He went from a guy who was going to be bouncing in and out of the minors and kind of just a middle arm and a deep bullpen to an elite closer in Major League Baseball, an all-star caliber type of pitcher and you can just see where that change was. And I, I think it's fascinating for him to have the self-awareness to then go, I'm going to take that same attitude to the battle with cancer. And then to still be on the other end of it and talking about how everyone else remains more important than him. It, it makes him just an unbelievably attractive person to root for as a fan. And not just as a fan of baseball, but as a fan of people. And you go through some of, of what Tori Rubenstein wrote about Liam Hendricks and his wife, Christy, and how Liam saw his wife's tarot card reader to change his mental approach and how it worked for him. And the way that before he signed with the White Sox, he had to make sure that the team had a pride night because it was important to Liam and his wife that they represent inclusivity in every walk of life. I think it just speaks to the level of human being that he is. 
outside of baseball, I think it's important that we highlight this, that the White Sox and Liam Hendricks, they have one of the most likable human beings in sports. Not just the most talented guy, not just a guy who's going to go and get you three outs and be electric doing it and pump up the clubhouse and pump up the dugout and, and throw curse words around when he's coming off the mound, but a guy who, who walks the walk, who means what he says and who really just puts everybody else in front of himself. I think he's exemplified as one of the best leaders in the sport and maybe not just in baseball, maybe in all sports. So hats off to Liam Hendricks uh, going through what he went through and having the ability to come back and not just pitch again, but be on that stage on Wednesday night, a national stage where he could represent this team and he could represent himself in a way that you can't say enough about how great it was. And I'm just thrilled for him and for his wife, Christy, and their family that he's able to be in a position where he's on the injured list, yeah, but he's going to be able to pitch and continue his career. And I can't wait until we're at a moment in time where we can see Liam back on the hill being what he is, attacking hitters and being over the top and a, and a just bundle of energy. I love watching him. I love his speech at the ESPYs, and I'm very happy for him and his family. White Sox Weekly continues next. It's ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. Greeny 10 to noon weekdays, ESPN Chicago. It's White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network. A lot still to do in the final few segments here of White Sox Weekly as we take you up to my pregame at 540. Len Casper and Connor McKnight will have the call of the game from Atlanta as Lance Lynn is on the hill against Spencer Strider of the Braves, their young starting pitching star. 6-15 first pitch will take you to the call of the game at 6-05. And Sox fans, start planning your group outing to the ballpark. We have party areas of all sizes that can be perfect for you and your group. Learn more about our spaces, including the CIBC Fan Deck or a patio party. For more information, visit whitesox.com slash party or call or text 312-674-1000. It's 312-674-1000 for more information. A uh, little bit of a lineup gamble that took place about a month ago, almost a month ago exactly today. June 16th was the big lineup shakeup for the White Sox that saw Andrew Benintendi enter the leadoff slot and Tim Anderson enter the two-hole. And there's a piece in the Chicago Sun-Times this morning from Daryl Van Schauen, who talked to Pedro Graffol about this decision Yesterday, Tim is in a bit of a slump. Entering last night, Tim was 2-for-23 in his previous five games and 11-for-88 over the last 22. Last night, 2-for-4 with a couple singles in that 9 nothing loss, the first game of the series uh, against the Atlanta Braves. The numbers on Tim, we will get to in a moment. I have to pause 10 seconds here for station identification. 
Live from the old National Bank State Street studio. This is WMVP WSHE HD2 Chicago, a good karma brand's radio station. Talking about those numbers on Tim Anderson since the day June 16th, almost exactly a month ago, that Tim moved from the leadoff spot to the two hole in the lineup. Batting 160, a 188 on base percentage, a 187 slugging percentage. Negative three weighted runs created plus. It has been a struggle for Tim. Now, Tim Anderson is a all-star caliber player when he's right. He is a professional hitter when he's right. He has done it at this level for a very long time. And Sox fans, like we see what you say. Sox Twitter, we see you, we hear you, and we get it. When you see the numbers on Tim since moving to the two-hole in the lineup, there's a lot of wonder from Sox fans about how you continue to bat Tim Anderson second. Routinely throughout the league, this is seen as the slot where your best hitter hits. The Angels bat Shohei Otani second. He's the best hitter in baseball. That For many, many years, they hit Mike Trout second. The analytic era has become the era where your best hitter, the best guy every day that you can roll out, bats second. It should be the guy who gets on base, who hits for power, who hits for average, great contact, all of that. And Tim Anderson, no matter where he's hit this season, just for whatever reason, has struggled. The full season numbers are not great. I mentioned the numbers since he moved to the two-hole. And, look, I, I get it, Sox fans, when you wonder how this continues to be the case. It, Van Schauen asked the same question. Why wouldn't you consider letting him go through this in the bottom of the lineup so that he can work this out? And Pedro Gafol had an interesting answer. Gafol said, quote, I trust him. I believe he's going to turn this thing around and be the player he's always been. Why not? Why shouldn't he be? He works his ass off. He's out there early, took 45 to 50 minutes of batting practice. He thinks this game, he's smart. Why wouldn't he be able to get out of whatever is going on? I don't think that's an unfair thing for Griffol to say. I, I think that, look, I mentioned Tim is a guy who's made all-star teams. He's a guy who was a superstar in this town when he was at his best. Won a batting title with a .335 average. He's been a pro hitter. And for whatever reason, this season it's not there. But I don't know that Pedro Grafol is totally wrong to have the faith in his guy. And maybe the all-star break and some time away from the game is exactly what Tim needed. Two for four last night, a couple singles. One of the few guys in this lineup who actually was able to hit against the Braves last night, Charlie Morton, the starter, was fantastic. And Tim got on base. Tim did what he used to do. He, he got on board with a couple contact singles. You start to wonder if maybe there's a bit of a turnaround. He put together a couple-game stretch a few weeks ago where he really looked effective. There have been flashes of Tim Anderson as we knew him. And I think Grafol is just figuring, play the averages, 
and eventually you're going to get Tim Anderson back. Griffol mentioned, quote, it's just a mechanical thing. Maybe he doesn't feel right. Quote, he's always hit and he's going to hit again. And added again, quote, there's no need to take him out of that number two spot. So this isn't a move that's going to happen. This doesn't sound like a change that's going to be made, some dramatic moment where you see Tim Anderson batting 7th, 8th, or ninth. He's going to be a mainstay in the two-hole. And you kind of just hope, as a White Sox fan, that maybe the first half was an aberration. A lot going on in Tim's personal life. He's talked about it. A lot going on maybe off the field. Sounds like some things going on mentally. Sounds like some things going on mechanically. And the all-star break could have been the great elixir. That's got to be the hope. If you're a White Sox fan, if you're a fan of Tim Anderson, getting a few days where, look, he wasn't in the home run derby. He wasn't in the all-star game. He's been in both of those events. Wasn't this time. And you get some time where you take four or five days where it's not all about baseball, where it's not the day-to-day grind. And maybe you get right and you get in a better headspace and you come back and you're that hitter again. And when you have a guy who you have 1,500 summit bats of him being a, a, a pro hitter, of him being a high-level player, and then you compare it against 200 first-half at-bats where he just was a mess, I don't think it's totally unrealistic to think the averages slide back the other way. Here in the second half of this season, look, we know what the 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 story is on this team. It's been a disappointing year. You're probably at a point where you're going to reset things, and there are reports out there from local reporters. I, I think John Greenberg mentioned next year they're looking at a payroll that might be less as they go through another rebuild process, a retool process. I think those things can be much faster than the average fan thinks when they hear the term rebuild. A lot of times it sounds like a lengthy, painful process. It can be. There are teams where that's true, but there are teams where, look, the the I, I've mentioned the Reds sold last year and all of a sudden they're first in the NL Central. The Diamondbacks sold. They're first in the AL West in a tie with the Dodgers. This doesn't have to be long-term painful, and if you are of the belief that the averages slide back towards Tim and he starts to be the player that he's been for his entire career instead of the player he was for three random months and maybe the all-star break was what could help him out and get him back into the correct headspace, I don't think it's crazy to keep Tim in the two spot. Here's the deal. At this point with this team, yeah, you'd like to put the best hitters in the best positions to succeed, but the reality is... This White Sox team is not going to be playing for contention. This White Sox team is not going to be playing to win much. Why not keep Tim where he feels more comfortable? Why not keep Tim in a place where maybe he's happier and go out, get a couple hits tonight after a two-for-four night last night, start to string some good games together? And we could be talking about, look, this season might not end the way everybody hoped it would with an American League Central Championship and an appearance in the postseason. But maybe there will be some bright spots in the second half. And hopefully one of those is a resurgent Tim Anderson who looks like the hitter that he has been for all of his career in Major League Baseball. 
Something we like to do on the pregame show here on the White Sox Hard Rock Casino White Sox Network is today in White Sox history, the strange start time 615 is going to cut into our ability to do it in the pregame show, but it is one of my personal favorite segments. Our executive producer, Brendan Riley, digs through the annals of baseball reference to find the way, way back machine and tell us what happened today in White Sox history. I want to bring this to you because I think it's interesting. Way back in 1907, the Chicago White Sox beat the New York Highlanders 15 to nothing. New York Highlanders, by the way, I've never heard of that team. That's how old this game is. 1907, the White Sox beat the New York Highlanders 15 to nothing. It was the second time that season that they beat New York by that score. In 1950, they'll beat them by the same score again. It's a Yankees team record for most runs by an opponent in a shutout until 2004. And there I am learning on the back half of this. The New York Highlanders are the New York Yankees. Who knew that? I got a dollar for anybody who could have told me that before I offered that little uh, factoid up. Thank you to our executive producer, Brendan Riley, for always bringing us today in White Sox history. Uh, The pregame show is coming up in about half an hour as we head towards first pitch from Atlanta, White Sox, and Braves. On the other side, Lance Lynn has found something, and I talked with Connor McKnight about this. I want to talk a little bit of Lance Lynn and a little bit about what the White Sox could be looking at with the looming trade deadline. We'll do that next. It's White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. The ESPN Chicago Triple Play AM, FM, HD, and app. It's White Sox Weekly on ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. It's Shane Orling sitting in with you. I'll have the pregame show at 540. It'll be Len Casper and Connor McKnight on the call of the game. First pitch, 615 from Atlanta. Calling all travel baseball players, 15U to 17U. Don't miss your chance to try out for the White Sox Elite Travel Team on July 17th and 18th at Benet Academy from 4.30 to 7.30 p.m. It's run by former MLB player Jim Aducci. White Sox Elite has helped over 100 students pursue their dreams of playing at the collegiate level. If you want more information, visit whitesox.com slash play. I told you this today in White Sox history at the end of the last segment. If you missed it, in 1907, the White Sox beat the New York Highlanders 15 to nothing. It was the second time that that season that they beat New York by that score. Now, what I didn't know when I started getting into this was the New York Highlanders are actually the New York Yankees. And in 1950, the White Sox beat the Yankees 15 to nothing again. It's the Yanks' uh, team record for most runs by an opponent in a shutout all the way until 2004. The White Sox held that record. Most runs against the Yankees in a shutout, 15. What's interesting about this is our executive producer, Brendan Riley, in the break, walked into the studio to explain to me how the New York Highlanders became the New York Yankees. And I think it's fascinating because we likely will never see this again. We were racking our brains in the break about teams that could qualify for this. The Highlanders back in the day, 
the fans simply called them the New York Yankees. Nobody called them the New York Highlanders. They called them the Yankees. And so at a certain point, ownership of that team said, eh, you know what, let's change the name. And we'll just officially be the New York Yankees. What team would do that today? Like, we're thinking in all of sports, there's probably not an NFL team that's going to be rebranded because the fan base just calls them something different. But there's some options maybe in baseball. The Oakland Athletics, nobody calls them the Athletics. They're the A's. At some point, just rebrand the franchise. And as they move to Vegas, does that become a reality? Nobody's calling us the Athletics. We're the A's now, the Vegas A's, and that's it. The Philadelphia 76ers, nobody calls them the 76ers. Everybody calls them the Sixers. At a certain point, do you just rebrand? Is that something that could realistically happen? The Tampa Bay Devil Rays of old, everybody called them the Rays, and eventually Tampa Bay said, eh, we'll drop Devil. Who cares? We'll just be the Tampa Bay Rays. I it just one of those weird nuggets. Baseball is full of them, where a team is called something officially, the New York Highlanders, and because the fan base never grew into that name for whatever reason, and just called them the Yankees, which is also very interesting to me. That of all the things you could call them, you just were like, yeah, they're the Yankees, and the team eventually brands themselves that way. It's baseball is full of so many strange things when you go into the Wayback Machine as we do with today in White Sox history. I don't know if there's a team we'll ever see have that again. Just an interesting nugget uh, that Brendan and I were talking about in the break and I wanted to offer to you. 312-332-3776. If you want to talk some White Sox, it's White Sox Weekly. Uh, Lance Lynn has been a resurgent kind of pitcher lately. He had a rougher outing against the Angels on June 29th. Six innings, gave up five runs on eight hits. But the strikeout numbers have been there all season. And I talked with Connor McKnight a little over an hour ago about Lance Lynn and about what's been happening in his season, where the fastball spin rate is as high as it's been, among the best in baseball. And it is effective at getting swings and misses. And he started mixing in the changeup which has been wildly effective for Lance at getting swings and misses. That's been fantastic to see. He had the 16 strikeout outing in Seattle, gave up just three runs, just two walks. The walk rate has come down quite a bit. Uh, Not given up any more than two walks in any of his last five starts. And his last start might have been his best of the season. His last start in Toronto on July 6th, seven innings, one hit, no runs, one walk, 11 strikeouts. Easily his best start of the season, and that includes the 16-strikeout effort that tied a franchise record uh, back on June 18th in Seattle. I say all this to say, as the White Sox approach the trade deadline, Lance Lynn could be becoming one of those names that becomes interesting for this team. He in a in a starting pitching market that is thin. Anybody reporting around baseball will tell you the starting pitching market for the White Sox or for all of baseball is thin. The White Sox may possess two names 
that could be among the top of the list for all teams in need of in need of starting pitching help. One of those teams, the teams you're going to see tonight, the Braves, need help. Now, there's no reporting that suggests the Braves have reached out about Giolito or about Lance Lynn. But they do need help, and they do believe they're a contender, and they're the best team in baseball currently. And they have, they have every team's got top five prospects in their systems that they could deal. The Dodgers have been linked heavily. White Sox and Dodgers share a facility in spring training. They're familiar with one another's farm systems. They're familiar with one another's prospects, and they're familiar really with the major league talent. the The Dodgers, in particular fond of a hometown guy, Lucas Giolito, who is from Los Angeles and could be an option for the Dodgers and their rotation, which has been bereft this season. Mediocre at best, not getting top-tier performances out of some of their guys. And now Clayton Kershaw hurt. That's a team that year in, year out wants to be a contender, wants to be among the best in baseball, wants to try to win World Series now, they are also setting themselves up to be in what will be the sweepstakes of a generation when Shohei Otani becomes a free agent this coming offseason. And the White Sox may want to manage their payroll a little bit. We have almost never, or Dodgers, excuse me, the Dodgers may want to manage their payroll a little bit. We've almost never seen them make that decision. This season feels like. They're looking at things a little differently, managing the money that they're spending, trying to keep options open this coming off season when Shohei Otani enters the market. Could that affect the way that they choose to treat this deadline? Maybe. But they're interested in Giolito. There's reports surfacing that the Cincinnati Reds have been in contact with the White Sox about starting pitching help. So I think as we head towards this deadline, you start to look at some of the names that could be really likely. Mike Clevenger is up there. Kendall Graveman, who has an $8 million number on his contract for next season. When you talk about would that be expensive, I don't think so. When you talk about Kendall Graveman, a guy with a 2.93 ERA and 40 innings pitched this season, didn't allow a run in the entire month of May on 11 appearances, five runs in June on 13 outings, no runs so far in July for Kendall Graveman. $8 million is not some massive expense for a guy who could be an anchor in the back of a bullpen of a contender. I don't think the fact that he's not a rental would scare someone off from buying on, in terms of Kendall Graveman. And then Tim Anderson, who we just spent some time talking about. It's been a struggle in this move to the two-hole, but he continues to come up in the reporting as an option that a team could could look to add in their infield, whether at second base or at shortstop. Could we see Tim Anderson get traded? I'm not sure. The first half of the season was such a struggle. But again, Pedro Griffol will tell you as, as much as anybody, he's a guy who has hit at this level. He's a guy who has been an all-star, won a batting title. He's as good as anybody when he's right, and it could definitely interest a team. Uh, and I think I like to keep mentioning this because I know the idea of this team selling, it, it, it's not a great appetite for a lot of fans. It doesn't taste good going down. But it doesn't always have to be a lengthy, painful rebuild. It could be quick.
you could get a top five prospect, a top seven prospect who comes up and gets hot. And a guy like Spencer Steer, who the Reds acquired at the deadline a year ago and contends for a rookie of the year this year. Those things can happen. The point I'm making to you is this. The deadline's coming up and the White Sox have as much major league talent as anyone. They likely will be the headline team around baseball as far as what's going to be available, the thinness relatively of this deadline market. The White Sox have maybe more major league talent that they could deal than anyone. When you think about Lucas Giolito, when you think about Lance Lynn, Mike Clevenger, a guy who's having a bit of a bounce-back season, albeit hurt right now, but a 3.880 ERA. He's been good when he's been healthy and could be a solid middle-of-the-rotation arm for a contending team. You talk about Kendall Graveman, Joe Kelly, Keenan Middleton, who's an unrestricted free agent, Tim Anderson. There are names here that the White Sox could lead the charge as we approach the deadline. We'll wrap up with White Sox Weekly, take you to the pregame show next. It's ESPN 1000, the Hard Rock Casino, White Sox Network. Chicago's home for sports on Instagram at ESPN underscore Chicago. Wrapping up White Sox Weekly pregame coming your way in under 10 minutes. I will have the pregame show today. White Sox looking to get their first ever win in Atlanta. One of those interesting baseball oddities. Lance Lynn on the hill for the Sox. Spencer Strider for the Braves. Len Casper with Connor McKnight on the call of the game. First pitch, 615. Attention students, don't miss your chance for exclusive tickets to the Wintrust Crosstown Series as the Sox take on the Cubs July 25th and 26th. Take advantage of our student ticket offer. Student steals and sign up today. To register, text STUDENT to 244-769. That's 244-769. Text STUDENT. Or visit whitesocks.com slash student. Spent a lot of time this last half hour talking about Tim Anderson. An interesting piece in the Sun-Times. Talked Pedro Grafol talked about they're not going to move him out of the two spot. It's been a struggle for Tim. It was a struggle in the leadoff hole. It hasn't gone great as this two-hitter in this lineup. But the White Sox did something interesting this week in the other event, not All-Star, that took place in Major League Baseball, an event that's, I think, gained some traction in recent years. It's something I think fans used to not pay any attention to. Now they pay at least a little attention to it. And that's the Major League Baseball draft. And in the first round, the White Sox, with the 15th selection, took a shortstop out of Ole Miss, Jacob Gonzalez. Ole Miss won the national championship in the 2022 season, and Jacob Gonzalez currently the number 18 overall draft prospect by MLB.com. What I think is interesting and what a lot of people around baseball who have reported on the draft and who have talked about what signal fires the draft sends up about what a team's plan might be for the future. Taking a shortstop kind of suggests the White Sox might be looking at life after Tim Anderson. Uh, 
And that's something I think was unfathomable to Sox fans in recent years. But with the way this season has gone, probably doesn't come as a huge surprise. And when you look at Jacob Gonzalez, who I imagine most White Sox fans know next to nothing about, the profile on him is really good bat-to-ball skills, meaning good contact, disciplined at the strike zone, could be, this is the profile literally on his draft uh, stock here, quote, at least a solid hitter, has been more consistent in 2023 after hunting home runs too much as a sophomore, and with his strength, bat speed, and leverage in the left-handed stroke, 25 homer potential. Look, that's everything the White Sox have been looking for for like three years. A lefty bat that can play the infield, that can come up, hit 25, 30 homers. If this works out, could it be life after Tim Anderson? Maybe. And you talk about the need to have lefty bats. There's some questions about whether he can stay at shortstop because he's not quick. But if he can, you talk about bolstering the left side of your infield with some young talent, a guy who's top 20 in baseball currently, uh, a really high-level prospect in this draft. So I, I think that's a that's a spot where you get Jacob Gonzalez out of Ole Miss the White Sox may be looking at life after Tim Anderson, and it might not be all that bad. Get in the first round, get a top 15 pick, get a kid who's won a national championship, bats from the left side, shows power. That's what this team has needed, and that could be exciting. Some good news also as Yoan Mankata started his rehab assignment in AAA Charlotte last night as he makes his effort to return to this White Sox lineup. White Sox need his bat badly that's it for white Sox weekly coming up in about four minutes it'll be the pregame show as we head to atlanta len casper connor mcknight will have the call of the game i will take you through all the pregame notes lance lynn spencer strider a hot night in marietta georgia white Sox and braves coming up next it's espm 1000 the hard rock casino white Sox network